trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program about helping people free themselves from mental slavery. Yeah, I speak to you as one who has spent a good portion of my life in mental slavery, as most of us have. But you notice I'm uh, I'm not exactly the one who's sitting here freeing you. I'm encouraging you to free yourself, which means... I don't expect you to to agree with or even believe everything that I share with you on this program. I'm simply asking you to consider some different points of view, maybe a slightly different vantage point, and then to choose for yourself to think as clearly and independently as possible. Ask if this adds to your your total understanding of the big picture. And if it does, well, then you should start to seeing some great opportunities to remove those chains, see the world as it is. And here's the reason I want you to see it as it is. Because I believe you and I were born with something to do. Let me put that in a little more precise terms. I believe you and I were each born to make a difference, an individual difference that only we can make. The difference I'm supposed to make is difference is, is not the same one as the difference that you're supposed to make. And that's, I believe, how God intends it. And with his help, we really do make a significant change for the better in the world around us. This is not for everybody, though. At least not everybody, you know, resonates with this kind of approach. But I assume you're probably at least questioning, hey, what are these chains on my mind? Or you wouldn't be listening to this show in the first place. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate you being a part of uh, of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. What an interesting time we live in. You know, there's, there's an actual legitimate, well, legitimate, there's an actual official government agency now whose purpose is to protect you from misinformation. That would mean ideas that the people in power consider dangerous. Not because it might lead you to harm, but simply because it might cause you to doubt whatever they tell you or whatever they're demanding that you do. Now, see, I say that's a healthy thing, but, you know, I'll let you make up your own mind. So among the things we're going to be talking about in today's show, we're going to talk about uh, having a reality czar. What could possibly go wrong with someone there to watch over our shoulder and gently guide us, you know, to the correct thinking that we should be engaging in? We're also going to talk about the 2000 Mules film. Haven't seen this yet, but I understand there are actually a couple places online where I can see it. Um, everyone who has seen it th- that within my circle of influence that has reached out to me has said, you should probably watch this. You know, for all the talk about, uh, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with the 2020 election and anybody who questions it is is, is seditiously trying to undermine their con- the confidence of this nation in its government. Mm. Having not seen the movie, I can't really comment, but I'm going to share with you a great article by Andrea Widberg about the film. And it appears to show some pretty convincing evidence that it was not on the up and up. We'll talk about uh, the great crash of 2022, the economic crash. That's kind of scary for some, but this is some of the best analysis that I've seen in that it, it encourages us to learn from the past, other crashes that have taken place. What can we expect? What happens next? Also, I have a really top-notch article that uh, 
outlines how U.S. officials are cynically using Ukraine to cover their their food shortage sabotage. Again, I know these are pretty heavy topics, but I think you're up to it. And uh, again, these these are simply to shed more light on some really tricky situations that are developing. But I'm, I'm going to start with some some things about what you and I can do. For instance, we're going to talk a little bit about how the world doesn't run on magic. We're going to talk about uh, how if you want to change the world, you got to start by changing yourself. But today I'm going to begin with uh, an article from Tyler Brandt that should be... You know, this should be a soothing balm to anybody who finds themselves in trying circumstances. Hint, that's going to be all of us at some point. And when you find yourself in really tough circumstances, the easiest thing in the world is to see yourself as the victim. Play that victim card. I'm a victim here, therefore I'm not responsible for anything that happens to me. That's the beauty of victimhood. A victim isn't responsible for his or her circumstances, so they can safely give up, put the blame on others, or expect others to make things happen. Tyler Brandt has an excellent article, and it's titled, Why Me is the Wrong Question to Ask Yourself. He says, ask this instead. Now, this was published back in 2019, which for a lot of us was before times really took a turn for the more difficult. Tyler Brandt says, many times in life I've asked myself, why me? When experiencing tragedy and hardship in a world where it seems like you suffer more than others, this is an easy question to ask. It comes to the mind just as easy as basic basic arithmetic. However, he says, after trying hard to seek understanding and not letting my ego get in the way of truth, I realized not only is the framing of this question inaccurate, but it's a pointless question to ask in the first place. And here's why. He says, suffering is universal. As the North Lane song Scarab goes, so you want the effing truth? The truth is we all suffer. We all suffer in life. We suffer in time. Now, he says, harsh lyrics, no doubt, but it's brutally honest truism. Suffering at a young age, it can seem as if you're the only one who's experienced tragedy or misfortune. However, you have not lived long enough to fully understand the reality of the world. So instead of asking the 12-year-old if he has suffered in life, try asking a 70-year-old. And the elder will certainly be of different opinion. It seems unfair that people suffer at younger ages. Many people issue empathetic remarks such as, he's too young to have experienced that, or nobody should have to outlive their parents. The sad truth is, this is just wishful thinking, so not necessarily accordant with the laws of nature. Tyler Brandt says, tragedy befalls us all at some point in life. So asking, why me, is self-centered. It's a self-centered perspective, which is not indicative of the bigger picture. So understanding that suffering is universal and not just specific to yourself, you might approach the individual problem of suffering with a different question. Instead of asking, why me, a better question might be, why not me yet? When we attune ourselves to the outer world and we realize the great feats of suffering that others are put through, We develop empathy towards one another. He says, asking yourself this question will put you in a place of appreciation instead of harboring resentment toward the world. You'll see how many others are much worse off than you. You'll develop gratitude for the things you have around you. You might notice you have your health, a roof over your head, people who care about you, a stable support system, access to quality food, among a litany of other things. And after realizing this, you might be able to grasp the great concept of your suffering. 
You might say, yes, life is tough, and what I'm going through sure isn't easy, but there are many other things I'm grateful for in this world, and compared to other people, maybe I'm not as worse off as I once thought. Now, that's not to say that your suffering is insignificant. As Jewish psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl once said, quote, to draw an analogy, a man's suffering is similar to the behavior of a gas. If a certain quantity of gas is pumped into an empty chamber, it will fill the chamber completely and evenly, no matter how big the chamber. Thus, suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind, no matter whether the suffering is great or little. Therefore, the size of human suffering is absolutely relative, end quote. Now, Tyler Brandt says the thought experiment is intended to orient yourself more toward the outer world and less toward your own inner perspective. It reminds you that terrible things can happen to you, but as for right now, you have a lot to be thankful for. Now, there might come a day where things will be worse off, so you must appreciate what you have right now and not let it slip through your grasp. Cherish each and every moment you have with people you care about, Enjoy the experiences that life has to offer because there will be a time that each and every one of us experiences the full weight of the world. So he says, ask yourself, why not me yet? I hope that doesn't come off as well. That's some pretty uh, industrial strength navel gazing there, Brian. What, uh, you know, what, what am I supposed to make of this? To me, the, the part here that just jumps out is, do you really stop to appreciate what you've got? Look, all of us are feeling a pinch right now. All of us are feeling uncertainty. I mean, we try to tell ourselves, oh, it's all right, everything's still under control, or things really aren't that bad, but, you know, there's, there's a lot going on that, that really should be getting our attention and probably should, if you're paying attention, be causing at least some degree of, whoa, what's this, you know, alarm, or at least awareness, maybe concern. But rather than sitting there and getting caught up in all the things over which you have no control and there are, there are always going to be things that, that are going to hit us like this spend a little bit of time being appreciative for what you have pay attention to the suffering of others around you and I think I think Victor Frankl would back me up on this one wherever possible do what you can do to ease another person's suffering now that's often going to be something, something as simple as just being there for them You don't even have to say anything. You don't have to weep with them. You don't have to hug them. You don't have to hold their hand. Sometimes those things may be the way to go, but if you're helping other people with their suffering, whatever you're suffering with is going to be a lot easier to bear. I don't know why, but that is a law of the universe. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Got to thank some of the sponsors who make this program possible, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Now, of course, Heather and her team can help anyone within the sound of my voice in the state of Utah or in the state of Idaho. If you are looking to uh, finance the purchase of a home, it's a pretty hot real estate market, notwithstanding interest rates starting to creep up. There are still tons of people moving to the Intermountain West, and that means when you find the home of your dreams, you've got to have your financing squared away right now. So please contact Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call 435-703-4522. 
Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, let's take a moment here to uh, talk to those who are not feeling so good about government becoming the gatekeeper of what we should see and hear. I mean, I'm sure it's for the best of intentions. Well, we just want to protect you from misinformation. But if you're not feeling good about it, I would say trust your feelings. Gary Gallas, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, says realities are what could possibly go wrong. He says in his April 25th American Enterprise Institute post, Obama is wrong about regulating disinformation. Mark Jamison disputes Barack Obama's recent argument that the growth of social media and technology undermines our democracy and that regulation has to be part of the answer. Now, Jamison sees a looming danger such arguments ignore. If the government can influence what people see, it can make them relatively ignorant of the data and opinions the government dislikes. That's especially important because government officials are often significant actors in spreading false information. So consequently, the answer to bad information isn't a greater information gatekeeper role for government. Rather, it's more voices. Because those who put themselves in that role often get it wrong, leaving us little assurance that a government gatekeeper would result in more truthful statements. Gary Gallus says, Obama reminded me of New York Times writer Kevin Roos's call last year to create a reality czar led government task force to root out disinformation despite a history of government and its acolytes disseminating misinformation, clear biases, and also suppression of those with different views. Now, if that job was in academia, it would no doubt be called the George Orwell Chair, rather, the George Orwell Chair of Truthiness, if Stephen Colbert was one of the donors. So who could be trusted as the realities are? Come on, you know the answer. It's no one. That's why Democrats never suggested one when Trump was in office. In politics, truth is subservient to power. And Gary Gallus says further, any attempt to provably establish the truth when it is in doubt would be littered with obstacles and controversies and often beyond possibility. But it would create a clear path to eviscerating Americans' freedoms. So a person indisputably committed to both truth and freedom could possibly... Only a person committed to truth and freedom could be possibly trusted to lead such an enterprise. Is there anyone who qualifies? See, that looks like a nearly empty set. Now, if he wasn't long dead, Gary says, I would nominate John Milton. Why? Well, before America's founding, he argued for freedoms of speech and the press and against censorship in England. His defense of freedom of conscience and later, uh, later powerfully resonated with America's founders, reflected in our First Amendment. So it's worth considering the principles that Milton would use to establish truth and preserve freedom. In his own words, quote, Whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. Let truth and falsehood grapple. Truth and understanding are not monopolized. If it comes to prohibiting, there is aught more likely to be prohibited than truth itself. Milton also said truth needs no policies or stratagems to make her victorious. These are the defenses that error uses against her power. Give me the liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. That's a pretty powerful one. When complaints are freely heard, deeply considered, and speedily reformed, then is the utmost bound of civil liberty obtained. Milton also said discern in what things persuasion only is to work. 
No institution which does not continually test its ideals, techniques, and measure of accomplishment can claim real vitality. Is it just or reasonable that voices against the main end of government, meaning liberty, should enslave those that would be free? Milton also said all controversy being permitted, falsehood will appear more false and truth the more true. And they who seek nothing but their own just liberty have always right to win it and to keep it, be the voices ever so numerous that oppose it. And finally, he said, Liberty hath a sharp and double edge, fit only to be handled by just and virtuous men, who have the happy skill to know what is grievance and unjust to a people, and how to remove it wisely, that good men may enjoy the freedom which they merit, and not the bad, and the bad rather the curb which they need. End quote. Now, Gary Gallus says, Milton would also add other important qualifications in evaluating, evaluating reality. He would not be misled by government promises that threaten the rights that compromise our, that comprise our liberty, rather, just because government doesn't mention that fact. Similarly, when benefit promises far outweigh promised exactions from citizens, he would recognize they are omitting at least some of the truth. As the English language, language's second most famous author, after Shakespeare, he would also be alert to the abuse of language not in pursuit of truth, but rather over power, but power over others. So Gary Gallus concludes, discussing John Milton as a reality or truth czar, that's not really a serious proposal, but it reveals the position's necessary requirements. Love of truth and freedom that our country was founded on. And further, those requirements would almost certainly result in many of the positions, promises, and policies of those who appointed them being identified as both untrue and unworthy of freedom. Consequently, no such czar would ever be installed in the George Orwell chair, and anyone less trustworthy would savage rather than serve Americans' life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I think he sums it up pretty nicely there. And, and I, I'm not trying to flex here when I tell you this. I don't even remember the name of the, the woman who's been appointed as the, the, the person who will head up the disinformation board uh, or whatever it's called in, in the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, and it's, it's mainly because I just I don't care. I don't care who she is. To me, the very idea of a ministry of truth, even by some other official name, is so repugnant you know, I, I refuse to grant it any legitimacy whatsoever. So I'm not spending a great deal of time obsessing over, oh, oh what's she going to do? What's she going to do? I don't care. And if that sounds, you know, like, well, what do you mean you don't care? You know, you're just turning your back on it. No, I, what I'm meaning is regardless of whatever the current administration is doing, I'm going to continue to speak the truth. And I'm going to encourage you, continue to speak the truth. Continue to seek the truth. But to me, the most important thing that we have to take away from this conversation is not that, you know, the Democrats are wrong and they're, you know, they're, boy, the Republicans need to toss them out on their ears come the midterm elections this fall. I know that's where a lot of people are coming from, but I'm coming from the standpoint of you have got to propaganda proof yourself if you don't want to be subject to somebody else trying to tell you this is approved and this isn't. I'm saying reject that. Be your own truth detector. Be the kind of person who is so committed to living in reality that you don't need that proffered help from government. Well, we're just here to, you know, make sure that, you know, we're, we're protecting our democracy from misinformation. Come on, man. Do what we say. 
You shouldn't just tell them no. You should tell them, hell no. I'm not going to do that. Now, this means a little more work on your part and my part. That means if there's something you want to know about, you don't go running to Google. You don't go running to mainstream media. Okay, you might go to Google, but essentially what you're going to be doing is your own research. And when it comes to seeking truth, there are a few things more valuable than original research, meaning you work your butt off to learn what you need to learn about a given subject, and original sources. Instead of going to textbooks, which will tell you, well, this is what Thomas Jefferson was thinking when he said this. Why not go read what Thomas Jefferson himself had to say or any other source? I just I use Jefferson as, as an example. Go read original sources. Do your original research. Think for yourself. Be willing to do the heavy lifting. And then you, too, can reject those offers of official help. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. Yep, that's food storage, emergency preparedness supplies. You can order them right from the comfort of your own home. Please click on the link I provide in my show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Just click on life-saving food. I don't care how prepared you are. I don't care how squared away you feel. I bet you'll find something that would be useful either for yourself or maybe for somebody who's just getting started. I know people laughed at me over the years, and maybe rightly so, for suggesting that, you know what makes a really great gift for birthdays, for, you know, Christmas, for holidays, for even you know, non-special occasions, just a surprise gift? Food storage, preparedness supplies. It, it, trust me, they're more welcome now than pretty much any time before. So, you know, if you want to you score some brownie points, this is, this is a good way to do it. What's on their website at lifesavingfood.com is in stock, so you can order with confidence. But I would do this kind of thing sooner than later. This is the kind of thing that I know a lot of people want to put off until they're sure that something is seriously wrong. Don't be that person. Be ahead of the curve. Be ahead of the crowd. Get yourself squared away today. You know, of all the things in the world that, that need fixing... Sometimes it's easy to forget that our highest priority should be fixing ourselves. Got a great article here from Tony Fakhri explaining why to change the world, you first have to change yourself. This was published back in 2018, and Tony Fakhri says, well, he starts with, with a quote from Leo Tolstoy. Maybe you've heard this quote, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. And Tony Fockery says it was the American author and speaker John C. Maxwell who wrote, Most people want to change the world to improve their lives, but the world they need to change first is the one inside themselves. Now, everyone has an opinion on what's wrong with the world, yet few will do the work to improve their own lives. It's easy to draw attention to what's wrong in the world because on one level it's frustrating to observe these conditions and stand back while they take place. So he says, I often remind myself and others that the world has existed for 4.54 billion years and is much older and wiser than us. We have existed for a minor part in that timeline, and conditions weren't always ideal. In fact, history shows conditions were less than idyllic. So a utopian paradise needn't exist for us in order to be happy. We can still thrive despite the unrest in the world because outside conditions aren't as bad as you think they are. 
Now, he says, if you want to change reality, start with yourself first and attend to your own personal development. In doing so, problems give way to solutions and no longer affect you. Author Larry Wydell writes in Serial Winner, Five Actions to Create Your Cycle of Success, if we all live the richest life possible, it's personally fulfilling, but it also changes the world. Now, he includes a quote here from Mother Teresa. I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the waters to create many ripples. Ooh, I like that imagery. And here the author says, most people are frustrated or angry with circumstances beyond their control. They believe that if they can control these situations, they will be happy. But sometimes it's not possible since there are too many things to control. It requires redesigning your life to suit you or playing God neither of which is possible. So it's simpler to attend to your own personal development. What that means is when you feel frustrated, angry, or any other disempowering state, become curious and work on that part of you that's at war with reality. He says it's futile trying to change conditions out there because life is constantly changing. It's like trying to keep plates spinning on a stick while more plates are added. You can't keep up, and they will eventually come crashing down. So it makes sense to work on yourself so that outside conditions no longer affect you as they once did. This is the key to enlightenment, raising your level of consciousness so you transcend problems with a higher awareness. Albert Einstein recognized this principle when he said, we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. So consider the following example, highlighting why you must attend to your own personal growth if you want to change the world. Imagine 100 people who constantly complain about the state of the world. One day they collectively decide they've had enough and undertake personal development to change their lives. Within months, they have stopped whining and are now open to embracing life instead of being mired in their problems. They act from a place of love, peace, and joy. Now you've heard it said, you are the sum of the five people you most associate with. Therefore, if 100 people can influence five others, we have 500 people who are now more self-aware than before. And if that cycle continues, a tipping point will occur occur so that anger and fear no longer prevail. Now, he says, I'm not naive, and I know this utopian reality will not miraculously emerge overnight, if at all, within the coming decade. Yet, undertaking personal development will not only help you, but influence those around you. I've seen evidence of this with my family and friends and those I've coached. He says you change the world, not by pointing out what's wrong with it, by up, but by upgrading your model of reality to coincide with what you wish to see in the world. It's an inside-out job. Vishen Lakiani in The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, 10 Unconventional Laws to Redefine Your Life and Succeed on Your Own Terms, says you don't have to change the world. You just have to change what you pay attention to in the world. And that, it turns out, is hugely powerful. So, if you're ready to upgrade your model of reality, this this may be the key. Woodrow Wilson said, you are here in order to enable the world to live more amply, with greater vision, with a finer spirit of hope and achievement. You are here to enrich the world. That's a pretty noble sentiment. I'm not not a big fan of Woodrow Wilson, but truth is truth. And it was the late Dr. Wayne Dyer a well-known self-help author who said, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. See, he understood that change must first take place from within and has a ripple effect on the lives of others. Now, if that change is powerful enough, 
it will gather momentum to affect the whole of humanity. And here the author says, look, I admit it's difficult to focus on what's right in the world when we're governed by our internal state, which gets the best of us. And the media, of course, adds to the negativity by reporting bad news to promote fear and it becomes challenging to break the spell. So he says, I often succumb to these disempowering states at times, so it is remiss of me to offer the advice and claim not to feel this way. Yet, through my own personal development, I've come to appreciate that these are fleeting states, and I don't remain stuck in this condition for long. Awareness has taught me that what I focus on builds momentum and becomes integrated into my reality. So Tony Fakhri says, the advice is clear and simple. Be aware of what you are pointing the finger, pointing of when you are pointing the finger outside of yourself, rather. Go within and attend to that part of you that's inclined to judge outside circumstances as bad. And he says, heal yourself first by integrating your shadow self and be mindful of your thoughts leading you down a path of negativity. If you do this often, you'll break the cycle of incessant thinking that dictates there's something wrong with the world. It's worth the effort to your personal growth. Eventually, the problems that consumed you will no longer affect you because you've upgraded your model of reality to coincide with a new awareness. Now, Tony Fakhri's a self-empowerment author and speaker, but I want to give you an example from, I think this is more than 100 years ago. G.K. Chesterton was given the assignment to write an essay for, uh, I don't remember which newspaper it was. it was. It was one of the big newspapers that had global circulation. And the topic he was given was, what is wrong in the world? Now, look, I, I don't know about you, but if somebody said, Brian, you know, if you would sit down and just write a, an essay on what is wrong in the world, I honestly don't think I would have that hard of a time coming up with, uh, well, I'm sure I would exceed whatever word limit they gave me. I could go for days. <laughs> but what's amazing about the story is G.K. Chesterton, when confronted with that, I mean, you put yourself in his shoes. You have... This amazing platform. Now, granted, this was in the days before TV and radio, but it uh, it was an amazing platform to to speak to something that really matters. What is wrong in the world today? How would you answer that question? What kind of things would you focus on? I mean, I know what my pet issues would probably be. What would yours be? It'd almost be difficult to start, right? But what's remarkable about the story is G.K. Chesterton sent back his reply to those who had commissioned him to write this article. And his reply was, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. It kind of backs up what uh, Tony Fakhri is talking about here. What is wrong in the world today? The only honest answer that you can give, if you're sincerely, you know, serious about changing things for the better is I am, meaning I need to fix what's wrong with me before I go about fixing the world. And something incredible happens when you take this approach. Yes, you do have to confront things about yourself that may be unpleasant or that may be uncomfortable or that might even, you know, be embarrassing. However, as you work on those things, you come to know yourself, you come to know who you are, you much more clearly recognize the things that you stand for that are absolutes in your life, And with that comes a kind of quiet confidence, not cockiness or just, you know, well, I got this all figured out. But just the assurance that you are, in fact, improving the world. You will put off the vibes of someone 
who is solving problems. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. This is uh, where I would point you if you are in the neighborhood or in the mark uh, in the market rather for new high quality and remanufactured ammunition. Spencer Worthington is the founder of HSL Ammo. This guy does great work not only in building ammo and helping people uh, turn their money into skill at arms, but also in uh, providing a great uh, a great benefit for his community in southern Utah by creating a business, hiring a great workforce, keeping them occupied, keeping them productive, and providing something that people actually need and use. So if you are in the market for ammunition, I'm, I know there's a lot of choices out there. Ammo may be expensive, but it's still a good thing to have. Please consider doing business with HSLAmmo.com. And when you do, tell them thanks for being one of my sponsors. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the uh, 2000, I'm sorry, the 2020 election. I know that we're not supposed to doubt the integrity of this election. That's a good way to get yourself banned from most social media. But it appears that there may be some good reasons to doubt whether that really was the most honest and above-board election in our lifetimes. Got an article here from Andrea Widberg. Uh, this is from AmericanThinker.com. The title is The Riveting 2000 Mules Proves There Was Massive Election Fraud. Andrea Widberg writes, Dinesh D'Souza is an effective filmmaker and he didn't disappoint with 2000 Mules, a riveting documentary examining the way leftist organizations used activists to stuff ballots in the 2020 election and the 2020 Georgia runoff election that handed the Senate to the Democrats. However, she says, after watching it, I felt there were some unanswered questions that also deserve scrutiny, so I hope D'Souza follows up on these issues. 2000 Mules begins with the premise that Trump voters have found it impossible to believe that Trump lost the election. When they contrast his campaign appearances, 60,000 screaming fans with Biden's campaign appearances, six vaguely animated lumps sitting in little circles, the bellwether counties or states that show Trump winning by a large margin, the uh, significant gains Trump made with Hispanics and blacks, the millions of votes Trump gained over the four years of his presidency, and the mysterious overnight counting shutdown in the states that ultimately gave Biden his victory, well, they know something is wrong. The folks at True the Vote also suspected that something was wrong, very wrong. So the founder, Catherine Engelbrecht, working with Greg Phillips and a team of computer analysts, came up with a very clever way to determine whether there was fraud. They suspected as much thanks to the way in which Democrats in key states used COVID as an excuse to increase absentee voting. That included towns, or I'm sorry, that included states which allowed only absentee voting with drop boxes across cities and towns where there had been massive ballot harvesting. That is, people, both real and fake, didn't fill out their own ballots. Instead, they were collected, completed, and put into drop boxes by partisan and paid activists. So to prove this theory, True the Vote obtained geotracking information for major, ur major urban areas in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona, allowing them to follow cell phone signals. They marked all the drop boxes and all the facilities for left-wing nonprofits. Then they looked for cell phones that traveled between the nonprofits and the drop boxes at least 10 times to be sure to winnow out statistical noise. 
Through Freedom of Information Act request, they also obtained as many videos as they could showing people stuffing multiple ballots into the drop boxes, a completely illegal act. The data revealed 2,200 mules in just five cities, visiting between 20 and 45 drop boxes each, at which they dropped off an average of five ballots. So when you do the math, the numbers are staggering. Pennsylvania, they identified 1,150 mules, 45 drop boxes, and estimated 275,000 illegal votes. Michigan, 500 mules, 50 drop boxes, 125,000 illegal votes, estimated. Wisconsin, 100 mules identified, 28 drop boxes, 14,000 estimated illegal votes. Georgia, 250 mules identified, 24 drop boxes, 30,000 estimated illegal votes. And in Arizona, 200 mules, 20 drop boxes, 20,000 estimated illegal votes. Total of 380,000 illegal votes that they're estimating here. And things only get worse when you contemplate the fact that 10 trips per mule is an exceptionally high bar and that these were mules in just five cities. When one considers the small margin by which Biden won in the disputed states, had these mules not been active, Trump would have won the election by a medium to huge margin. Now, D'Souza also speaks to Hans von Spakovsky about the various methods of committing election fraud and how a think tank head, whose name she forgets to, to note down, explains how various leftist nonprofits helped with Zuckerberg's $419 million handout focused on creating voters rather than promoting their candidate. Now, she says the movie's clear and competent. D'Souza carefully walks Engelbrecht and Phillips through their methodology and their findings. And he also talks to well-known Salem radio hosts Sebastian Gorka, Dennis Prager, Charlie Kirk, Larry Elder, and Eric Metaxas to gauge the effect information had on their preconceived Eric's uh, ideas rather about election fraud. All but, Fra- all but Prager rather suspected fraud before seeing the evidence and felt the data proved it. As for Prager, he went from being agnostic to believing that yes, there was indeed significant fraud in the election. Now she says, as for me... I've long felt that Biden could only have attained the White House through fraud for the reasons mentioned above. So the evidence true the vote gathered merely confirms my suspicions. However, she says, I was left with two questions. And I applaud her for asking these questions. The first was, which left-wing organizations made the fraud happen? See, the movie never names them, presumably because they're being investigated or because D'Souza wants to avoid a defamation suit. Both are good reasons, but she says not identifying them diminished the movie a little. Second, and more importantly, the movie failed to explain what happened the night of the election. So Andrea Woodberg says, look, as best as I could tell, and I could be completely wrong about this, the mules were operating for days or even weeks before the election, as opposed to the frantic drop box fraud the night, uh, to, to simple uh, frantic drop box fraud the night of the election itself. So she says, assuming my version of events... On the night of the election, in all the jurisdictions in which the mules were at work, Trump had a compelling lead as of 11 o'clock that night. Then in each of those jurisdictions, something happened that had never happened before. The counting stopped. When it resumed, Biden was magically in the lead. Did the mules affect those numbers too? Or was it the case that even with the help from the mules, the numbers still didn't add up for Biden, so the Democrats had to go to plan B? 
By the way, she says, AP immediately fact-checked the movie. She says, I didn't find the fact-check compelling because it ignored something important. True the Vote didn't just look at the people who repeatedly went near a drop box. As the movie carefully explains, it also made sure that the people repeatedly went to leftist nonprofits and visited multiple drop boxes. It is a frantic, angry, aggressive, and incomplete fact check. In other words, it's exactly what you would expect from AP. Now, she has links in the, in the article that will take you to, you know, some of the different organizations mentioned here. And, and you can read the, the AP fact check, too, if you want. Look, I understand this is, this is treading on thin ice. This is exactly the kind of extremist, violent rhetoric, you know, that as the Biden administration would, would typify it, uh, that, that they're worried about. This would undermine, you know, confidence in our governing institutions. And if I can just be really blunt about this, I doubted from the very beginning. I mean, I haven't seen the evidence, so I can't say I know for a fact there was fraud. But to me, it makes sense that uh, why wouldn't there be? Look at everything that the left was doing before Trump was even elected. Look at how they went off. And I mean, not just, I mean, we're talking Keith Oberman levels of meltdown across the political left when Trump was actually elected in 2016. And then they spent the next four years doing everything in their power, trying to conjure up any reason, anything, Russiagate, all the, the horror of it all. And they could not make people hate this guy enough to throw him out of office. They impeached him once, then they impeached him again just to make sure he couldn't ever run for president again. So the same people who were doing all of this, you know, temper tantrums and and falsehoods and just any reason, and, and the press, of course, nonstop going after Trump every day, day in and day out, I'm supposed to believe that, but in the interest of honesty and, you know, forthrightness in the election, they put all that animus aside and they, you know, kept their feelings in check and just let the will of the people play out as it should, honestly, openly, and above board. Yeah, right. (laughs) Sorry, but uh, your actions have spoken very loudly over the last five or six years, and yeah, I'm not buying it. So yeah, I would I would actually be more surprised if there was, you know, evidence of no fraud. Can you prove a negative? I don't know. At any rate, I'm going to be watching the movie 2000 Mules. Be very interesting to see how hard the Ministry of Truth works to suppress awareness of this particular movie. Maybe take a look at it yourself. See what you think. This is the Brian Hyde show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm here to help you take off the chains of mental slavery. But here's the kicker. you got to take them off yourself. It has to be a conscious decision that you make to think as clearly and independently as possible. I'm here to help facilitate your journey. I can't take it for you. 
And uh, frankly, there's going to come a point where you're going to outgrow me. You're not going to need me. You're going to just be running swiftly along your own path to the truth. But I'm grateful to be here to offer whatever assistance I can. I've got some great sponsors who help make this possible on a daily basis, including GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, and Dixie Chiropractic. You can check them out at DixieChiro.com. Well, I've got some heavy stuff to share with you this hour, but uh, this is in the interest of being better informed and not so much of let's sit around the campfire and tell each other scary stories. No, this is this is about understanding what's happening in the world. And I want to share with you some thoughts about what's happening in the economic markets. I've got a great article here from Bill Blaine, The Great Crash of 2022. What happens next? Now, this uh, this was published on ZeroHedge.com. I think it was originally published by Bill Blaine on MorningPorridge.com. And it starts with a headline from 1929 about uh, the Wall Street cl- crash. And uh, Wall Street in panic as stocks crash. And it says, yesterday's market meltdown was heralded as capitulation trade. Now, this is talking about our time. But who knows? What we do know is there's an awful lot to worry about and conditions for the big one have been building for decades. It's time to reread The Great Crash, 1929. Bill Blaine says there's nothing like a 6.30 a.m. swim against the tide on cold gray morning and muddy near freezing water to remind you of why we spend so much money on mattresses and warm, snuggly duvets. Of course, a swim should have been a wonderful moment to contemplate what the papers are calling the capitulation trade. As stocks posted their worst day in a couple of years and bonds tumbled, But keeping up my momentum against the building down tide was my primary concern. Now, he says, does that mean I missed the opportunity to liquidate my entire account before the end of everything, which might be later this afternoon? Oh, dear. On Wednesday, the market welcomed Jay Powell's 50 BP hike with a relief rally. But yesterday, I think he means Friday, it puked and reversed all its recent gains. What changed? Well, he says, who knows, but... Yesterday Was yesterday really the beginning of the big and negative something we've all been waiting for? Bill Blaine says, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Who can tell? If I knew, I wouldn't be swimming in dirty cold rivers to stay fit, nor would I be writing about it each morning. He says, the thing is, there are market crashes, and there are market crashes, and there are market crashes, underlined and in bold. Confused? He says, yeah, you will be, but let me try to explain. He says, uh, let's start this morning by taking the lotus position and reciting Blaine's mantra number one ten times. The market has but one objective, to inflict the maximum amount of hurt on the maximum number of participants. Um. Now, he says, yesterday's news rumor mill was working overtime, despite lining up a whole gang of supervillains to support his bid. He says, I'm not sure that that Musk will acquire Twitter on this offer. Not just because of the regulators now circulating it, but I suspect he's going to step back and think it through. He'd be daft not to as conditions change, but his credibility's on the line, so daft it may still be. Now, he says, back in the real world, talk of massive investor withdrawals, funds in trouble, banks worried about margin calls, and a host of little horrors. Things like the meta ordering a hiring freeze as growth slows, 
Concerns about ARK, Tiger Fund, and a billion other little things, little signals, things are getting a bit noxious out there. But he says, on the other hand, let us not feign surprise if this overhyped market collapses. We've all known markets have been struggling for months. Sentiment is precarious. Momentum has been flat. We've been waiting for positive signals to resume the upside, but instead a host of exogenous and endogenous shocks from Ukraine, energy and food inflation, rate hikes, QT, tax rises and politics have roiled sentiment. Even Robin Hood traders can understand that people have lower real earnings and savings are stretched. When that happens, they won't consume as much, and therefore the economy will slow. Though even my puppy gets that. Crashes occur when the voting machine that is the market suddenly shifts, and the maximum number of participants find themselves on the wrong side of a move. Now, often a trigger is needed. Like yesterday's crash caused after the euphoric buy-the-fact rally was replaced by the realization that the Fed is hawkish, and the Fed doesn't really know. Now, that's a feature of all good crashes. The folks we think know everything, the brilliant entrepreneurs, the leaders of industry, the titans of finance, and megamind hedge fund managers are exposed as not knowing terribly much or swimming naked as the tide goes out, as someone famous once said. So he says, crashes are momentum moments. They become a chain reaction. As the shift occurs, players worry less about chasing the market higher, and they start to question why it's failing, or falling rather. As they lack information, they wonder what others might now. Their core beliefs are shaken. Their concerns are magnified. Sentiment is rocked. Fear triggers panic or fear triggers selling pressure, causing the herd to stampede. And all these behavior shifts coalesce in a cascading ripple of panic that roils and rolls around the market. Bing, bosh, bank, criticality is reached. Yeehaw! Now, some crashes occur as a slow correction. When it becomes clear, inflated financial assets expectations have been over-egged and that the returns are not as promising as hoped. The game becomes finding the greater fool who will be the buyer at the top of the market as everyone else exits. The greater fool will often sell at a loss to another optimistic idiot who thinks the assets look cheap as it falls, but doesn't realize the bubble is well and truly popped. By the way, that's what happened with the dot-com bust in 2000 and seems to be happening today with names in ARC and busted flushes like Meta and Netflix. Now, some crashes occur as a sharp correction, like when a massive sentiment bubble unexpectedly pops, causing the market to crash. But such crashes can reverse fairly quickly. So the great Hurricane Black Monday crash of 1987 was such an event. Every major market crashed between 20 and 40%. Now, it came on the back of a 300% rise in global stocks over five years. Big bang in London, global growth and recovery after the bleak 70s, but the trigger was a series of tax changes and a rising trade deficit in the U.S. Suddenly, everyone wanted their money out, triggering a stampede for the exits. And a timely reminder, the New York Stock Exchange has 27 doors marked entry, but only one says exit. Now, he says some crashes happen because the market's been fooling itself for too long. Imagine a world where massive amounts of central bank liquidity have been juicing stock markets and keeping bond yield low for a decade. Or financial assets have been trading a a repeated record high in spite of lethargic economic growth, where the global economy is racked by supply chain breakdowns, a global epidemic, out-of-control inflation, and increasing geopolitical tension and the threat of war. Imagine a world 
where a single automaker meeting a fraction of the world's auto demand is worth more and makes less than all the other manufacturers combined. A good example of what is to come in the Great Crash of 1929. Now, the Great Crash was the inevitable culmination of the gilded boom time of the 20s, the excesses of the Gatsby era, and a fervent belief that the world had changed and unlimited wealth and jobs were the new, new normal. Speculation, most famously in the fetid Florida swamps, was rife. Credit was free and easy and pretty much out of control. Everybody believed till the moment they did not. And it all went south in October 29. The interday fails were not record-breaking, but collectively, a five-day, a five-black-day series was the worst collapse in stock market history. There was a mean reversion in the stock market over three years, completely wiping out all the post-World War I gains. And critically, it triggered years of banking failures and economic decline as bankruptcies and corporate failure swept the U.S. It triggered global depression, ushered in the rise of populism in Europe. Recovery required a war. Now, the initial political responses, like protectionist trade policies in the U.S., simply made the crash in global trade even more damaging. Eventually, it was realized greater financial regulation was an o- and, and oversight was required, while Roosevelt's New Deal went to repair some of the social damage in the U.S. So he says, let me set you readers some homework for the weekend. Arm yourself with a copy of John Kenneth Galbraith's fantastic and entertaining book, The Great Crash, 1929. And then he issues this challenge. See if you can spot any parallels. And if not, he asks, have you been paying attention? If you want to understand the future, understand the past. Okay, I think there's a lot of wisdom on, on, in that on many levels and on many different issues. I'll have a link to this uh, article in my show notes at the thebrianhideshow.com. Again, this is from Bill Blaine. I know it's an unpleasant thought. Let's face it squarely, learn what we can, and then act accordingly on our own. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention uh, Dixie Chiropractic, one of my great sponsors. Great news for my listeners in southern Utah. If you are dealing with uh, car accident injuries or a bulging herniated disc, or even if you're dealing with neuropathy, Dr. Ward Wagner at DixieChiro.com is there to help you. And a couple of introductory offers that uh, you should maybe consider taking advantage of. If you're dealing with bulging herniated discs, here is a $99 intro special that includes two treatments plus massage, All you have to do is get in touch with Dixie Chiropractic. Or if you're dealing with neuropathy, here's the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. DixieChiro.com is where it starts. This will put you right in touch with Dr. Wagner and his staff. I appreciate them being a sponsor of the show. Please tell them where you heard about them. I've got a great essay to share with you, and this one kind of took me by surprise just because I wasn't sure what to expect. It's from Anthony Esselin, and it's all about how the world does not run on magic. Now, this is, uh, this is about how the world works, but specifically, the, the subtitle here talks about how many a boy languishes in school because he finds no arrow there. So let's delve into this. The, the bottom line here is, I'll, just, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler ahead of time. Young men without direction 
without uh, an outlet to focus creative energy tend to want to cause trouble. This is where we find ourselves. It also helps if, if they don't have fathers to help guide them. So Anthony Esselin says that a recent hearing before the Senate Committee on Homeland Security, the CEO of Colonial Pipeline made an admission which illustrates quite well our negligence and improvidence. The company paid out nearly $5 million in blackmail money to an unknown hacker when the pipeline was shut down for several days. Now that, of course, was bad enough. And most of the man's testimony had to do with the technicalities of which government agency was notified and when and what the computer experts in the company did to remedy the situation. But there was another piece of his testimony, one that you had to look hard to find in the news reports. He testified that most of the men who could operate the controls on the pipeline have died or retired, so that the 5,500-mile line must rely almost wholly upon computerized systems for its operation. Now, that means, of course, that we are vulnerable to attacks by people who do not have to take a guard at gunpoint or dig a big hole somewhere that no one will notice. Practical necessity required the engineers and the men who constructed the Croton Aqueduct to ensure that the system had many points of effective control, not one, lest some random accident in one place leave a million people without drinking water. But our technology has progressed to the point where, for a time, we can get away with running things on the cheap and the irresponsible. Now, this fact merits some consideration. He says, intersectionality is the academic fad of our time, asserting that various forms of prejudice against members of different groups inevitably intersect when someone belongs to more than one of the groups. The various structures of disadvantage overlap and and intersect to the harm of certain designated minorities, including women, in whose case minority is a metaphorical term. It's a deterministic theory that reduces the immensely complex tangle and muddle of human relations to a formula. And it ignores the fact that human ingenuity is like intelligent water. If you try to dam it up here, it will spill out over there. If it's narrowed in scope, it will gain in force. Anthony Esselin says the human mind is restless and the human will is stubborn. And people will make a virtue of necessity. Now, the term intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, a black lawyer and professor of law at UCLA. Crenshaw is a feminist, and though she maintains that black men are not better off than black women, she pursues policies that for the working-class family are like prescribing blood thinner to someone who's hemorrhaging. Those families are in desperate need of strong, well-remunerated men who can support them with what are and what practically must remain masculine skills and regions of activity. And yet Crenshaw has fought against any particular focus upon the needs of boys, and she's championed the Equality Act, which, with its promotion of women and gay men, is a dagger aimed at the heart of a healthy, masculine camaraderie that builds aqueducts and lays pipelines. So let's talk about free men and free labor. Anthony Esselin says the Colonial Pipeline was invented, built, and maintained by men with the technical skill to do that work. So whatever we say about its invention and construction, though all of human history testifies to the boundlessly creative power of mechanically-minded men, certainly the maintenance had to be that way. Women were not going to do it then. And with an occasional outlier here or there, women are not going to do it now. If you call a plumber to deal with a sewer pipe that's backed up into your basement, it is a practical certainty that it's going to be a man 
because the sheer strength required to deal with the the valve rusted shut or with a section of pipe that has to be cut or muscled into place is like a threshold. If you cannot reach the threshold, and if you're a teenage boy or an old man, you're likely to fail, you cannot do that job. You cannot, as our women soldiers apparently do, ask the man next to you to give you a hand. All kinds of tasks involve such thresholds. All right, then. Now suppose that you do not want to raise boys to be those men. How can you ensure that you fail at this basic task? Well, first, you deny millions of boys a married father in the home. You pursue policies perversely designed to reward family breakdown. Now, Anthony Eslin says here, I'm speaking of the preponderant case. Boys are not going to learn how to wield a sledgehammer from their mothers. Second, you push college credentials, hugely expensive and now of dubious value as far as actual learning is concerned, so that most people who do not go to college must languish in low-paying and menial work. Instead of building the Brooklyn Bridge, they're wheeling carts of groceries at Walmart. Third, you divert resources away from high school boys who want to pursue the skilled trades. And he says, that has been a terrible mistake. If you go to the Museum of Industry in Stellarton, Nova Scotia, you can see relics of what used to be, within living memory, a program of education in the trades on wheels that went from place to place throughout the province. Boys took great advantage of it. Now, it no longer exists, even though we need technicians still. Perhaps the people who run our schools have so little experience themselves, so little memory of physical labor in their shoulders and in their hands, that it never occurs to them the world cannot run on courses in sociology or politically enlightened novels. They do not think who's going to dig that well. They trade not in fresh water, petroleum, electricity, uranium, titanium, and gold, but in words. And not well-chosen and historically grounded words at that. Margaret Atwood is at leisure to write about her Republic of Gilead, a feminist dystopia in which women must submit their sexuality to their male masters only because men carved Canada from the wild for her to write it in. So how at this juncture can we redirect resources to those high school boys? Now, Anthony Esselin says that's hard to figure because we committed ourselves to equality, which in this case means that young men who do have the strength for skilled manual labor and the tolerance for risk and filth will be forced to be as useless as young women when it comes to maintaining something like the colonial pipeline. This equality comes at the expense of the common good. And he says it's frankly absurd that we must rely on a computer program, all things concentrated upon a single vulnerable point, and not upon a network of skilled men to maintain a pipeline that delivers 100 million gallons of gasoline, heating oil, and airplane fuel to Americans in the East every day. Now, every lack presents an opportunity, but only if you have people with the inclination and power to take it. Imagine what a Booker T. Washington would have made of this state of affairs. He would have hired pipeline technicians in a heartbeat and set them to training his young men to do the much-needed work. And they would have made themselves indispensable, and when you are indispensable, it doesn't matter what people think of you. They need you. They pay you. And in any case, do good work and they will change their minds about you, even if they were ill-disposed in the beginning. All right, I've got to tap the brakes here because I'm coming up on my commercial break. and uh, So we're going to pay a couple of bills here. But we'll come back to Anthony Esselin's article about how the world does not run on magic. And I don't know if this is, is striking the same chords for you that it is for me, but I don't know. This felt like a pretty nice dose of reality, like a straight shot. 
with no chaser. We'll come back to it. We'll finish up the article. Again, you can find it in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm going to pimp them here for just a moment because, uh, not because I think they're all that, but I know that there are people who are seriously looking for good, credible, timely sources of information that aren't steeped in partisan dogma, but actually will, will shed some light on what's happening in the world. I do my best to seek out and find those resources, which I can then share with you on a daily basis. I put it all together in my show notes, complete with links that you can follow. Often within those links, there are further links, depending on, you know, how deeply you want to research a given topic. All I ask of you is go to my show notes, click on any particular day of the notes, scroll down to the bottom, you'll see a big subscribe button at the bottom of my show notes, and just put in your email address. I'll send it to you each day that I do this program. All right, let's get back to Anthony Esselin's article about the world does not run on magic. And one of the things he's exploring here is why is it that that we seem so determined to keep young men, particularly in high school, from becoming the kinds of workers who can get out there and build pipelines and maintain things that keep civilization moving? Why do we want to turn them into basically a neutered version of the generations that came before us? He says Americans are now so tremendously incompetent that any generation of reasonably, reasonably provident men maneuvering themselves into work that only men such as they are can do will enrich themselves in a generation and seize the levers of power in the next. Wow. So he says, for what I'm saying about this pipeline is true generally in the United States. Our infrastructure is a mess. He says, for instance, drive along our major highways. What do you see? Roads designed for much lighter traffic than they now bear, substandard entrances and exits, ponderously slow repairs, bad lighting, general ugliness, vandalism when you approach the big cities. The junction between Interstates 93 and 95 in Massachusetts in the densely populated Boston metropolitan area is notoriously bad and has been so for at least 30 years. He says, imagine what happens every day when four lanes of traffic must be narrowed down to two around a long bend. Why has this bottleneck not been remedied long since? Well, who would do that work? And where's the money gone that might have hired the men to do it? Ride on a train into Philadelphia or New York and note every site at which skilled labor might be employed to develop, to repair, to beautify, or to clean. And consider how many thousands or even millions of young men might find such work if we were only raising young men capable of it and willing to do it. So making that a national priority would go a long way towards solving several problems at once. We would replace vulnerable nerve centers with a practically invulnerable net. We would gain the benefits of safety, cleanliness, efficiency, and beauty. We would raise the hopes, the incomes, and the aims of the working class. We would suddenly make it possible for working class men to marry young and with confidence. We would strengthen their families and take a small but important step toward reversing America's decline into single parenthood, with its results in loneliness, incapacity, and for many a frustrated young man, crime. And those among us most likely to profit from it would be, profit directly rather from it, would be precisely the disadvantaged populations that uh, those who preach about intersectionality say that they want to help. 
Think of African-Americans. So he says, why don't we do these things? Well, he goes, let me answer that question with another question. Who benefits most from entry into the workplace of many millions of women of childbearing age? The answer is the rich. They can afford the best daycare. If they own businesses, they get the benefit of depressed labor costs as more applicants are chasing the same jobs. It would be against their interest for one good income per household to become the rule again rather than the exception. They get to enjoy two prime salaries for a single household, and they spend most of the overage in isolating themselves as far as possible from the working and lower middle class. It is against their bent toward self-isolation to be rubbing elbows with well-remunerated plumbers, carpenters, masons, miners, earth movers, and welders with their rough hands and sometimes rough ways. The feminism that denies the strength of young men or damns it as toxic masculinity and that discourages the virtues that build family life intersects with the old-fashioned social and economic structures that keep the poor in their place. Now, he says there's still another reason why we don't form those working men, because we believe the world can run by magic. We believe in good magic and in bad magic. Now, the bad magic is easy to see. We're awash in words, and that means we are awash in cant. We use labels to manage what might be a devilishly difficult thing to study, let us say, the relations between men and women. Instead of facing the great mysterious and many-featured universe of customs and laws to adapted to different people's climate, agricultural opportunity, technological development, and religious faith, not to mention the innumerable physical distinctions between the sexes, we explain it all away with one word, sexism. We then take the word for an existent thing, like bauxite, except that bauxite can be identified precisely and analyzed, whereas sexism is simply a form into which we press everything we see. It's not that men have always been impelled to work both by their nature and by the need to support women and free them up to care for children and maintain households, especially before modern technology rendered cooking, cleaning, and laundry less than a full-time job. Sexism kept women from having careers. It's not that men at the highest grade are better chess players than women. Sexism somehow causes all the chess champions to be men. Why it would be why it would bother why it would bother to do so a pointless a thing and by what precise mechanism no one can explain in fact if you ask for an explanation you'll be condemned as a tool of the sexist system this is not to play with conic sections it's just to argue in a circle a magic circle now of course we also believe in good magic it seems that we assume the world can run in a magical way we need to only wish a thing and it will happen because somebody will take care of it or rather something a mysterious agent in a black box. To save the world from climate change, we should use electricity instead of burning fossil fuels. Yeah, but where do we get the electricity? Well, it must simply happen, like lightning from the sky. Anthony Eslin says, I dare say we've all read hundreds of articles on the need to provide power in a clean, efficient, and sustainable way, but how many address the fundamental problem posed? That is, that all electricity is generated by the brute physical fact of making a great shaft of magnetic metal turn. And once you face that fact, you confront other facts having to do with the quantity of force available, its reliability, the metals and plastics you must use to house that enormous and by no means simple turbine, the type of conductive wire wherein the electricity will be produced, the amount of electricity, the pressure it exerts, the resistance it meets to its flow, the distance it must traverse, and more you face the same kinds of problems as beset the builders of the Croton Aqueduct. 
What happens when the flow is interrupted at one point? Will everyone downstream from the interruption necessarily be without power? Are there valves, so to speak, to control the flow? Are there conduits to siphon away any excess? The 10,000 men who worked on the Croton Aqueduct at any one time had a broad array of practical and scientific skills. Now, where did they get them? Not mostly from school. Only the few chief engineers would have gone or might have gone to school to learn about hydraulics and geology. The vast majority of the men learned by work. Women did not teach them that work because, to mention another brute fact, women did not do that work and could not do it any more than prepubescent boys could do it. But because no one can do such a work now, we must hand our safety and welfare over to a computer program at precisely a time when, more than ever, it would require the well-directed strength of young men to make our cities healthy once more and raise strong families of responsible citizens. Many a boy languishes in school because he finds no arrow there. Things are staid, routine. Perhaps there are arrows to pick up now and again if you are the sort of boy who will look for them and not be too discouraged and if the arrows available are fit for the kind of shooting you want to do. But the failure of boys in school, not this boy or that boy, but boys by the millions, despite the fact attested by empirical investigation and the evidence of history that they are at least the equals of their sisters in intelligence, suggests that the schools are quite simply bad for them. They stunt their growth. Intellectually and practically, the boys are like pale and spindly plants that have been kept indoors all the days of their lives. Anthony Eslin says, and yet obviously we need these boys. It's criminally negligent to deny it. Consider how many black young men in particular are languishing, not because their schools are at their best, no great shakes, and because they lack fathers in the home who would train them up in skill and strength. Now his conclusion is that everywhere you turn your eye in the United States, you will find ugliness, disrepair, vandalism, buildings left to rot, and unemployed or underemployed young men, disheartened, not worth marrying, and ready to cause trouble since they, cause, since they can cause so little else. I've read that essay through about three times now, and I still find myself wanting to sit and ponder on that for a little bit. And part of this is because I have sons. Now, some of my sons have, raised, have been raised to adulthood, they're still trying to figure out what their path in the world is going to be. I still have one teenage son. But this really strikes me as true. Do we really want to raise them like some kind of indoor plant? Do we really need to uh, get the latest social imperative, you know, drilled into their heads? Because I'm not so sure. I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like I'm against higher education. But I think a young man who goes and learns a trade, diesel mechanics, plumbing, welding, carpentry, anything like that, is going to be able to provide value that, uh, you know, your English lit major probably won't, or at least not easily. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to sewingandquiltingcenter.com, located in St. George, Utah. So proud to have them as a sponsor of this program. And you may or may not be into sewing or embroidery or into long arm quilting, but I bet you know someone who is. 
I look at my mom. You know, we were just over at her house for Mother's Day yesterday. I took an extra moment just to to wander by her quilt rack and to again appreciate the incredible quilts that she has there. Now, she has made a number of these herself, but what really jumped out at me is a number of those quilts are things that her grandmother had helped to create, meaning she probably did a lot of it by hand, things that my grandma had actually created. And I don't think my mom actually has used a long-arm quilting machine, but my point is simply this. It's not just a pleasant way to pass the time. There's some great practical reasons for this. I think heritage is one of the strongest that I know of. But if you or anyone you know is in the market for anything having to do with sewing or long-arm quilting or uh, embroidery, sewingandquiltingcenter.com is the place you need to go. You can visit their store in St. George on Bluff Street. They have the supplies. They have the training, how to use your machines, and they will back it up by servicing your machines as well. Even if you didn't buy your machine from them, I sure appreciate them being a sponsor. Well, the great ephemera machine is keeping us bogged down in thousands of little things that don't matter. I've got an article here about how uh, the Biden administration is right now cynically using Ukraine to cover their food shortage sabotage. Now, if you haven't heard the phrase, the great ephemera machine, I'm including a link to Paul Rosenberg's article of that same name. Ephemera means transitory things or publications that are designed to be short-lived. This is how he describes it. He says, we in the modern West are living inside a giant ephemera machine. Every day we receive more than a thousand messages telling us what to fear, what to identify with, what to compare ourselves to, and of course, what we should buy. What makes it ephemera is that these are things that will matter nothing next year, much less in the long run. So that's why I want to, I want to cut through the ephemera of all the other stuff that's going on. And let's talk about this, uh, this food shortage sabotage. This is from F. William Engdahl on his website. And he says, it's beginning to look like some bad actors are deliberately taking steps to guarantee a coming global food crisis. Now, given all the talk about the Great Reset, given all the the moves that are being made by people at the global level to consolidate their power and control, this shouldn't be surprising. I mean, historically, food has been a means of controlling populations. And F. William Engdahl says every measure that the Biden administration strategists have been making to control energy inflation is damaging the supply or inflating the price of natural gas, oil, and coal to the global economy. And this is having a huge impact on fertilizer prices as well as food production. And this all began well before Ukraine. Now reports are circulating that Biden's people have intervened to block the freight rail shipping of fertilizer at the most critical time for spring planting. He says by this autumn, the effects will be explosive. So a little bit of uh, detail on this. With the crucial time for USA spring planting at its critical phase, rather, CF Industries of Deerfield, Illinois, that's the largest U.S. supplier of nitrogen fertilizers, as well as a vital diesel engine additive, issued a press release stating, quote, On Friday, April 8, 2022, Union Pacific informed CF Industries without advance notice that it was mandating certain shippers to reduce the volume of private cars on its railroad if effective immediately, end quote. Now, Union Pacific's one of only four major rail companies that together carry some 80% of all U.S. agriculture rail freight. The CF Company CEO, Tony Will, stated the timing of this action by Union Pacific could not come at a worse time for farmers. 
Not only will fertilizer be delayed by these shipping restrictions, but additional fertilizer needed to complete spring applications may be unable to reach farmers at all. By replacing this arbitrary restriction on just a handful of shippers, or by placing it on a handful of shippers, Union Pacific is jeopardizing farmers' harvests and increasing the cost of food for consumers. CF has made urgent appeals to the Biden administration for remedy so far with no positive action. Isn't that something? CF Industries noted they were one of just 30 companies subject to the severe measure, which is indefinite. Now, they ship via Union Pacific Rail Lines, primarily from its Donaldsonville complex in Louisiana and its Port Neal complex in Iowa, to serve key farm states including Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, Nebraska, Texas, and California. This ban will affect nitrogen fertilizers such as urea and urea ammonium nitrate, as well as diesel exhaust fluid, DEF, called AdBlue in Europe. DEF is an emissions control product required for diesel trucks today. Without it, engines cannot run, and it's made from urea. CF Industries is the largest producer of urea, UAN, and DEF in North America, and its Donaldsonville complex is the single largest production facility for products in North America. At the same time, the Biden gang has announced a fake remedy for record-high gasoline pump prices. Washington announced the EPA will allow a 50% increase in corn-based biodiesel and ethanol ethanol fuel mix for the summer. On April 12th, the Secretary of Agriculture announced a bold initiative by the U.S. administration to increase the use of domestically grown corn ethanol biofuels. Secretary Tom Vilsack claimed the measure would reduce energy prices and tackle rising consumer prices caused by Putin's price hike, wink, wink, by tapping into a strong and bright future for the biofuel industry in cars and trucks and the rail, marine and aviation sectors, and supporting the use of um, E15, actually I think this is Euro 15 fuel, this summer. So only the capitalized Putin price hike is uh, it's really not a reaction it's not a result of russian actions rather but of washington green energy decisions to phase out oil and gas you knew that right and the energy price inflation is about to go vastly higher in coming months owing to us and eu economic sanctions on the export of russian oil and likely gas however the central point is that every acre of us farmland dedicated to growing corn for biofuels removes that food production from the food chain to burn it as fuel. Since the passage of the passage of the 2007 US Renewable Fuel Standards Act which mandated annually rising targets for production of corn for ethanol fuel blends, biofuels have added a have captured rather a huge part of total corn acreage, more than 40% in 2015. And that shift mandated by law to burning corn as fuel has added major price inflation for food well before the COVID inflation crisis began. The key here is that the the U.S. is by far the world's largest corn producer and exporter. Now, to mandate a significant increase in corn ethanol for fuel at a time when of of astronomical fertilizer prices and fertilizer rail shipping being blocked deliberately by White House orders, this is going to send corn prices through the roof. And William Engdahl says, Washington knows this very well. Here's the point. It's deliberate. 
And it's becoming very clear, he says, that uh, the U.S. administration war on food is taking place here. The situation is being dramatically aggravated by USA de- USDA demands that chicken farmers kill off millions of chickens now in 27 states, allegedly for signs of bird flu infection. The H5N1 bird flu virus was exposed in 2015 as a complete hoax. The tests used by the U.S. government inspectors to determine bird flu now are the same unreliable PCR tests used for COVID in humans. The test is worthless for that. U.S. government officials estimate that since the first cases were tested positive in February, at least 23 million chickens and turkeys have been culled to allegedly contain the spread of a disease whose cause could be the incredibly unsanitary cage confinement of mass industrial chicken providers. The upshot is sharp prices in the ri- sharp rises in the prices of eggs by some 300% since November and a severe loss of chicken protein sources for American consumers at a time when the overall cost of living inflation is at a 40-year high. And to make matters worse, California and Oregon are again declaring water emergency amid a multi-year drought, sharply reducing irrigation water to farmers in California who produce the major share of U.S. Fe- fresh vegetables and fruits. That drought has since spread to cover most agricultural land west of the Mississippi River. That means much U.S. farmland. U.S. food security is under threat as never before since the 1930s Dust Bowl, and the Biden administration's green agenda is doing everything it can to make the impact worse for its citizens. In recent comments, U.S. President Biden remarked without elaborating that U.S. food shortages are going to be real. His administration is also deaf to the pleas of farmer organizations to allow the cultivation of some 4 million acres of farmland ordered left out of cultivation for environmental reasons. However, this is not the only part of the world where the crisis in food is developing. He talks about some of the different uh, geopolitical aspects, including the war in Ukraine and how that's affecting food. So, what are you supposed to do about this? Well, first of all, understand this is likely something we're going to have to deal with we have a few months we have a short window of opportunity to deal with it but this would be a great time to consider getting some reserves put aside learning to produce more of your own food but the time to start is right this minute don't put it off until some time of better advantage this is the brian hyde show